Well, welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is week nine of our series, Chosen Royalty, where Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. And if you'd like to take notes, there's a link to those in the show notes. Thank you for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. You know, do you know some people who are just driven by a cause, by a purpose, something that, you know, that just drives what they do? You know, there's all kinds of things, things that are as diverse as the environmentalists that might be driven by saving the whales or saving the trees to the group of people that made it the driving passion to try to save the Browns back in the 1990s when Art Modell announced that they were moving to Baltimore. Uh, You know, some people are, are driven by a cause that maybe isn't a response to a crisis. I think about the organization uh, MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, was started in 1980 by a woman named Candace Leitner after her 13-year-old daughter was killed by a repeat drunk driver. And uh, she was joined by other moms who, you know, that started this effort to fight against drunk drivers, to get them off the road after they had been caught. And, And it's been hugely successful in the sense that they will talk on their own website about how since they were were founded, the uh, incidents of drunk driving have been cut roughly in half. Uh, You have other people that are driven by a political cause. And so whether it's Republican or whether it's Democrat, you know, they're people that are passionate about the party and they're going to give money and they're going to, you know, donate time to their person or party. At election time, they're going to go door to door. They're going to put bumper stickers on the car and let everybody know what they believe, where they stand. You have others, um, which somewhat we've learned over the last 15 years as we've dealt with some of our son's medical issues. Uh, There are people that take up fighting for the cause of the welfare of kids, often related to some of the problems. We have one son with autism, one with diabetes. You have people that will fight for you know, juvenile diabetes uh, you know, fund. It's just trying to fight against uh, diabetes, standing up. Others that look at maybe um, kids with special needs and, and how do we create things. One, one group that we really have grown to know, appreciate, is something called Miracle League. And it's specifically a baseball league for kids with special needs, or even adults. They have adult teams now. And, uh, and their motto is, every child deserves a chance to play baseball. And it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. But it happens only because there are a lot of people who are saying, I'm willing to commit myself to that cause. I'm willing to make it happen. Now, now what drives people in causes like this? In my experience, a lot of the people get into things because they're drawn by firsthand experiences. For example, you know, most of the people that are involved in something like Miracle League are involved because they had a family member or a child that was special needs. And because they became aware of that need, they were said, okay, how do we, how do we help create something and support something that, that meets kids with that special need? See, in many ways, when you think of this, most people are doing it because they're, in a sense, saying, this is my story. You know, this is, this is my hardship, this is what I'm dealing with, or, or this is the cure that has helped me through this, and now I want to share it with you. And I think of that because when I think about people with a cause, there's no one who was more driven, more committed to the cause than the Apostle Paul and his commitment to the gospel of Christ. That's what we see here in this passage. I mean, this was something that he gave his life to. He was beaten for, he was imprisoned for, he was ultimately killed for his faith. And it was his, something he was committed to because of his own firsthand experience. The gospel had changed his life. In fact, the verses that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see is really just Paul saying, this is what the gospel has done for me. 
fact, to kind of see this, let me take a moment to kind of step back and really briefly review what he's been talking about in the first two chapters of Ephesians and see how they're related. In Ephesians chapter 1, he begins the first half, this incredible celebration of who we are in Christ. If we have a faith in Christ that, that he has saved us from sin, he has saved us from death, we are adopted by God, we are, you know, we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are made co-heirs with Jesus Christ, we are literally children of the King, we, you know, we, we have all these incredible blessings. And then in, in it, chapter one, near the end, he has this incredible prayer, and he prays that God would, in, would give us wisdom and revelation and lighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would understand the blessings we have, to really believe it. And not only that, the power that we have in Christ. And then he goes on in chapter two and describes what that power looks like. First of all, in verses one through, in, through 10, saying the power at work in our lives individually that we were dead spiritually and God gives us life. He gives us vitality. He gives us the faith that we need to believe. He calls us to, to be his, his workmanship, his, his masterpiece. And then he continues on about how God's power works in our life corporately as a church. The miracle of the gospel is that it destroys barriers that has divided you know, groups of people for centuries. And God wants to transform us as we're involved in the community of his people. But then let me go back to what we said earlier. Let me remind you of that prayer that he prayed at the end of chapter one and where he prayed specifically again that God would enlighten our hearts so that we would truly understand and believe all the things that he's saying. Look at this prayer, Ephesians 1 starting in 17, that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened not just your mind, the eyes of your heart, that you would not only know it, that you would believe it, that you would get it, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and saints. What's interesting is we're going to see next week, Paul prays a very similar prayer in the last part of chapter 3. And so twice he's praying this basic idea, these promises are so incredible. The love of God is so, you know, so awesome that we're going to struggle to believe it. And, and so I'm saying twice, I'm praying that God would do this miracle to give you the ability to really understand, really believe, really live into these things that are true about us. Now, when he prays this twice, it's implying something that's important for us to see. And it's implying that most of us really don't get it. We may know it, but we really don't believe it. We really don't live into it. And so it really causes us to ask a question. What would our lives look like if we really believe the promises and truths that are taught in Ephesians 1 and 2? This idea that we aren't slaves anymore to sin, that we are now adopted by God, that we are heirs of the promise, that we are chosen royalty, that, you know, that we are co-heirs with Christ. What, this is our identity. What if we sat in it? What if we lived here? What if we really believed it? What would our lives look like? How would we be different? See, what, that's pretty much what Paul's addressing here. And, and what he's doing is he's saying, what would it look like? And, and he says, okay, let me try to give you an idea what it would look like. Let me share my own life. Let me share my own example. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul. Now, what is the for this reason that he's talking about? 
I think what he's talking about is everything that I've been saying up till now in the first two chapters. For this reason, because of our, my new identity in Christ, because of the blessings that come in that identity, because of the power that is at work in me, for that reason, this is the impact that it's made in my life. Because I know these things to be true in my life, it's changed not only my understanding of who I am, it's changed my understanding of what the purpose of life is. Because I believe this, I'm now totally driven by a new cause. It is a call to this incredible new cause. Now, even as we look at this, I want you to see that, that he's speaking from firsthand experience. It's not, you know, well, here's this theology or here's a philosophy, here's spiritual truth. What he's saying is, this is my story. This is my truth. This is, this is how, it's, how much it's meant to me. He says, if you want to know what it looks like when the eyes of your heart are enlightened, well, God's started to do that for me. And this is the way that has changed me. Let me tell you how my life is different. I'm now driven. I'm driven by this cause. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 7 and following and how he describes himself. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Literally, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which he's given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of the saints, this grace was given me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's my calling. That's my purpose. The unsearchable witness of Christ to bring to light for the everyone what is the plan of the mystery held hidden for the ages in God who created all things. He's driven by that. That's his identity. He's saying, this is how God changed my life, and now I want to share it with other people. And I think Paul is saying, okay, if we really understand how God has changed us, should we be driven in the same way? Now, I know some people might say, say well, wait a second. You know, I don't want to be the kind of person that you know, like is shoving my religion, my, my spiritual beliefs down other people's throats. And I hear people say that all, all the time. And, and even in that, it, it implies a misunderstanding of the issue. You see, it implies this, this, this idea that, you know, that I'm doing something because I have a motive where I'm going to gain something by doing it. It's trying to sell you something for my benefit. But that's a total misunderstanding of what's going on, of the reality of this truth. To, to maybe understand what's really happening, let me use kind of another illustration. Let's imagine for a minute that you had been told that you had developed terminal cancer. The doctor tells you that within the next six months, you know, your body's going to waste away, you're going you're to die a painful death. You're without hope. And as you're dealing with that news, suddenly you hear about this new miracle drug that heals your cancer, and so you start taking it, and within weeks, not only is your cancer completely healed, it's completely gone, but you're feeling better than you have ever felt before. Now, do you think that you would tell anyone else about this cure? Of course. Of course, you know, you share the bad news and now suddenly you want to share the good news. You want to tell other people about it. Not only your joy, but you want to share with others who might need it. You see, what if someone else that you heard about that was diagnosed with that same terminal cancer? When they told you about their cancer, do you think you would sit there and say, oh, that's terrible? Or would you tell them about your cure and what had happened to you? Of course you would. You couldn't help but not to. Now, would that be shoving your cure down their throat? No. No, it would be lovingly telling them what they need, what, what solved your problem and what you know would solve their problem. Now, they can choose to take it or not. They can choose to reject it, but that's not shoving your cure down their throat. See, if you met with someone who had that same cancer and you failed to tell them, you know, maybe a friend would find out about that and say, why didn't you tell them? You know, don't, you, don't you remember how, how 
you know, how scared you were? You know, don't you remember what it was like when that you were under that death sentence? Don't you remember how this changed your life? How could you not be excited about something that had such a radical impact? In fact, it would be selfish, it would be unloving not to do everything that we could to tell the other person dying from that disease about how we had been saved with a cure that we know that could save them as well. Now, my friends, that's exactly the thing that Paul is talking about here. This is why he's driven by the cause of the gospel. Because he saw, as explained in chapters 1 and chapter 2, no, we were spiritually dead, that we were, in a sense, under the curse of, of sin with a cancer that not only, you know, that enslaved us spiritually, but that condemned us to eternity in hell. And, and that reality is actually far worse than any physical diagnosis of cancer than we could ever receive, because that's, this is eternal. We were without hope, except for God coming in with a miracle cure. And Paul has been telling us, okay, that's who we were. We were condemned by that cancer of sin, and yet now we suddenly have received that miracle cure of the gospel. Paul says, I've received that. I know what it's done in my life, and because it's transformed me, I can't help but share. Because I understand this new identity, I can't help but share other people. And now we've got to look at it and say, okay, is that true of me? And, and why not? And, and, you know, what we've got to realize is that if, if, if I really have been impacted, why wouldn't I want, not want to tell other people? Do we forget how helpless we were? Do we forget the miracle that it's done? Now, my friends, even if I share this, I'm not trying to do it in a way that it's like, okay, here's guilt, and you have to do this, and twist arms, and you need to feel guilty if you don't. That's not the issue that Paul is addressing, that God's addressing here. The issue is more of motivation, it's if I don't want to share this, if I'm not motivated to do it, then it tells me that I really don't understand things. I really don't understand how lost I was and the miracle and how saved I am. Because if I'm really, if I really am, my heart, eyes of my heart enlightened, I can't help but share. Now that's what drove Paul. But then, okay, what was something of the content and, and how do we understand what he was driven to share with the content of, of this call that he had? Now, on the one hand, we've seen already that it's part of what, you know, you know when he says, you know, as for this reason, he's speaking about everything in, in Ephesians 1 and 2, everything that he said up till now. But now he also brings out a different aspect of this. Let me again read chapter 3, starting in verse 3. For how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, as you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. And we can continue on, and you have repeated throughout this passage, mystery. Now, what is he talking about mystery here? Now, sometimes we can get in trouble here because when we think of the word mystery as we use it generally in the English language, it actually has a very different, almost opposite meaning of what it meant when Paul is speaking of it. See, when we talk about mystery, we're generally talking about something that is hidden that it's our job to try to discover. So you think of a mystery in a book. You know, you read a novel and, and you're reading it and there's a mystery, who did it? And there's clues that are in there and we're trying to piece together the clues and see if we can figure it out. And a good detective pieces it together. They, they find something hidden and they solve it. Now when the Bible uses the word mystery, it actually means almost the opposite. It means not something that is hidden that we have to discover, but it's something that that we would never discover on our own 
because it's that counterintuitive. It's something that doesn't make sense from a human perspective that we would never figure out, but now God has revealed. So what is the mystery? The mystery at the core is this, that from a worldly perspective, we think that we're accepted by what we do. So religion is, I'm good enough, am I try hard enough, I try to earn God's favor. The gospel is this mystery that says, no, God comes to save us, not based on what we do, but based on faith in Jesus Christ by admitting our needs, it's by grace we are saved. That is totally counterintuitive. We would never figure that out on our own. And yet God has revealed that so that we can know it. Now this is a huge, hugely important distinction. Because if we think of mystery as something that is hidden that we have to discover, then our job is to try to piece together the clues and to speculate, in a sense, what the answer is. And the problem is that if we speculate, we will oftentimes come up with some really wrong answers. Even an old story that I think about this that shows kind of the problem is there's a story about an Amish boy and his parents who took their first ever trip to the big city. And uh, so they go into this multi-story building and the the wife sees this fabric store and she goes over and is going to buy some fabric for sewing her new apron. And and the father and son are sitting there waiting, and they're just amazed by all the things they see. And they see in this one section of the building, this wall, and, and it's got these, you know, these glass, or there's this silver, you know, metal wall, and it's just an it's amazing thing. And every once in a while, it has like these doors that open up and part of the wall and close again, and they can't figure out what this is. And they're trying to figure it out. And, and as they're looking, trying to figure it out, an old woman with a walker comes hobbling up and presses a button, And these doors open up, and they see her go into this little room, and the doors close. And next thing you know, lights, numbers start counting up above the little doors, and and then they start counting back down. And then the doors open up again, and this beautiful 24-year-old woman walks out. And the father elbows the son, can't take his eye off this door, and says, son, go get your mom. Now, you look at that and you say, okay, there's a mystery, and we speculate as to what it means. And and the problem is when we speculate, we can come up with some really far-off answers. And the problem is that people, when they come to religion, they think that religion and spirituality and God is is a mystery that is hidden that we have to try to guess on our own. We need to speculate, and, and people come up with all kinds of wild, confused guesses. And so we have all kinds of ideas. You know, what is God like? And how do you get to heaven? And is there eternal life? And are there many paths to God? And how do you find spiritual peace? And, and you have all these answers, and they're all speculation. They're all guesses. And most people in our world are very comfortable with that. And so, you know, this idea that, in fact, you see not only this idea that we expect it to be speculation, but when someone offers something that they claim to be a right answer on religious things, people are offended. You know, well, how dare you think that your answer is right? Now, why is that? Because they're saying it's offensive for you to say that your speculation is better than my speculation. Because all we have is speculation. And so your guess is, well, that's your truth for you. That's your guess. This is my guess. We're on the same ground. That's the way the world sees it. And if you see it as a mystery, that makes sense. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Paul is teaching. When he says it's a mystery, it's something we could never figure out on our own. If left to our speculation, we will always come to a wrong answer. But God has revealed it so that we can know. Look at what, again, let me put these verses up, Ephesians 3.3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. 
It's not something I figured out. It was made known by revelation from God, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. What was his insight? Not his wisdom, which was not made known to me, uh, the sons of man and other generations. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's revealed specifically the apostles and prophets. That's the Bible. God has revealed these things. So we're not left to figure it out on our own. We're not left to speculation. What we need to realize is God has made himself known, so now we have revelation, not speculation. We're not left to guess on our own to try to figure out who God is or what he wants or how to approach him. And and, and Paul's saying, yes, there are questions about God that are a mystery. They're beyond our figuring out, but your opinion and my opinion don't really matter. We are called to say, okay, God, what do you say about yourself? And that is the truth. Now, some people would, you know, we come in and we say, well, this is what I, you know, well, that's your belief and this is my belief. And and then we say, well, no, this is truth. Well, how dare you say that your truth is better than my truth? And, you know, basically, how dare you think that your speculation is better than mine? Why do you think that you know the truth? And, and, And again, if all I had is speculation, I would agree with that argument. But it's not about speculation. Paul is saying, it's not, this is not my opinion. It's not what I figured out. This is about God's revelation. And when we talk about God's word, we're saying the same thing. It's not my opinion. This is what God has revealed about himself. And then someone would say, well, what makes you think I'm right? I don't think I'm right. I think that God's right. I think that God has spoken and what he has said, that is true. And so I'm going to readjust my opinions to align with what God has revealed about himself. I'm completely humble in my speculation because I don't know that much, but I'm completely confident in God's revelation. You know, I'm, you know, I'm look at that and I want to be consistent with what God says and what God says about himself. Now, we might come back and say, okay, well, I see the Paul, and, and he was driven by this, and this was a sense of calling, and, and he knew the message that he had. And, but even as Paul is talking about this, what does it have to do with me? You know, you know God can't use me. God called Paul. You know, I, I'm not called like that. Okay, let's look what Paul says about the credentials of the people that God calls. In verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. Now, I want you to see he's talking about himself, but as we do so, I want to remind you of some really important principles. You know, on Sunday nights, we've been talking about, for those that want to join us, we have a class on Sunday nights where we go a little deeper, and how do we understand the Bible? What are principles to understand the Bible? You know, so we're meeting tonight, 6.30, I'd love to have you join us here, in, here online. But, but as one of those things, we've been talking some basic rules about how to interpret the Bible. Now, I've got to appeal to two of those now. One of the rules is that the Bible is by its nature understandable, applicable, and practical. Another one of the rules is that the Bible, when you study any passage, remember God is always writing it to you. It's always about what is God telling you. Now, when we understand and apply these passages, we've got to see that Paul isn't just talking about himself here. He's really teaching us about us and about our calling. Again, why? Because the Bible is by its very nature practical. It's written to teach us something that God wants us to know. It's something that he wants you to know about who you are, about what to believe, about what to do. So when we read this passage, we've got to realize that Paul isn't just now telling us about his call and his ministry because he likes to talk about himself. No. No, what he's doing is he's under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to teach us, the readers of this letter, something about ourselves through the example of his life. 
You see, what he's doing is he's saying, this isn't just a story about how it was transformed through the understanding of the gospel, but he's saying, I want you to understand what it looks like to really have your heart and eyes enlightened. If you really get this, here, look at how it's changed me, because that should be an example of how it should change you. Now, you might be thinking again, you know, but again, that's Paul, and he's an apostle, and I'm not an apostle, and I'm not called to something like Paul, and, and you know, this is totally different. Well, yes, in one sense that Paul was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, there was a unique calling. And while we don't have the same calling specifically, Paul's really clear that we really are called in principle in the same kind of calling. We're, it's very similar. In fact, let's go just a few verses back, Ephesians 2, verse 10. Look what he says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Each one of us are God's workmanship. Each one of us have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Each one of us, God has created in us things that he wants to do that we should live into them. If we understand who we are, we live into these things. Where's masterpiece? Each one doing something distinct that's different. It's not the same works as Paul, but it's similar in nature. Then we say, but you don't understand, you know, but Paul, he was like a really spiritual guy. He was like really gifted, and, and I don't have that. Okay, let's go back to Ephesians 3, if you have your Bibles, verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What was Paul's credentials? His only credential is the same credential that God gives to us, grace. Look what he says. God didn't call me to this because it was good. No, I was least of all the saints. I was least of all the believers. He didn't do it because he was really overly gifted. No, this was a gift of grace. This grace was given to me. What was it? It was the working of God's power. And we need to realize that he is saying, you know, what is grace? It's unmerited favor. God did this not because I merited it, but because it was God's unmerited gift to me. You know, too often as followers of Christ, we understand that we're saved by grace, but we understand that there's a sense that, okay, well, again, religion is, I'm going to try to be good, I'm going to try to be good enough, I'm going to try hard. And we may look at that and say, okay, I understand that that I'm not, I'm not saved by works, it's not religion, I'm saved by grace, by acknowledgement of I'm a sinner, that Jesus died for me and I ask him to forgive me through his gift of grace. But yet, we may look at that and think that we are saved by grace, but then somehow think, well, then if God's going to use me, it's going to be because of who I am, because I've been good enough, because I, have, I bring enough to the table, I'm talented, I'm, I'm skilled. So we are saved by grace, but yet God uses us because of works. Now, that's commonly believed. We don't often say that, but that's where we really struggle. Now, when we believe that, one of two things happen. You know, a few people really believe that God called them because they're good people. And so what happens is that they go out and they, you know, they try hard and they try on their own ability and they're often self-righteous. They're, you know, self-reliant, usually create a mess. Um, far more of us, we think that we don't measure up. Well, I know I'm saved by grace, but you know, God can't use me. You don't know my background. You don't know my scars. You don't know where I failed in the past. And, and where I don't have gifts, I, I don't have what God, you know, I don't have anything special to offer. But again, understand grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. 
Look what he says. We, we, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it talks about we're saved by faith through grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, unmerited favor of God, we're saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's not by any means what we do. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace. That's how we have relationship with God. Now he continues that same, same, same thought, next verse, for by grace you have been saved. For by grace we are his workmanship. Literally, we are his masterpiece. Why are we his masterpiece? Because of grace. Not what we do. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not that we do it ourselves. We are created. We are made in him as a masterpiece, which God prepared beforehand, before we did anything good or bad, that we should walk in them. And basically, he just wants us to say, now, this is who you are. Learn to live into it. You know, we don't create ourselves. We are created for good works. And when we struggle and we say, you know, man, but you don't understand my failings and I've messed up here and... Again, what we're doing is that we're, in a sense, elevating ourselves and saying, boy, my failures are so great that God couldn't use me. My failures are greater than God's grace, or my weaknesses are greater than God's grace. And Paul is saying, no, I understood. I'm the least of the apostles. I didn't have anything to offer. It's by grace that God called me into this. And that's the only credential that any of us bring to the table, this grace gift. This grace gift that we say, God, all I bring is my willingness. All I bring is my weakness. And you, can you come and take somebody as fallen and flawed as me? And God says, okay, yeah, the more that you admit your weakness, the more you rely on my strength, the more that I can work with you in miraculous ways. And if you say, oh, I'm the least of the apostles, I'm the least of the saints, I'm, you know, well, you know, let's move over. We're joining Paul. And God is able to use people like that. Now, we might say, okay, well, maybe he could use me, but I don't think he could really use me to do anything significant, anything meaningful. And Okay, remember, it's about God's power working in us. And so look at what he says about our confidence if we embrace this. Look at what he says in verse 9 and 10. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages of God in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may, may be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, sometimes we get discouraged. And we see not only our own limitations, we see what's going on in the world around us, and we're like, man, what difference can we make? But look at Paul's perspective on this. He says, God's grace is working in me, not because of who I am, but because of his power, because of him. And, and we're called to live out now, why? Knowing that as we are faithful through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, when he says rulers and authorities in heavenly places, if you go to chapter 6, verse 12, he uses that term again, and he's clearly refer, referring to Satan and, and his demons, spiritual powers. And so what he's saying is that God's plan is that now, through, through the church, the manifold wisdom of, 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 the, of, the, of the gospel, the freedom over, of the death of, of sin, the freedom of you know, slavery to sin, that is going to be made known not only to the world around us, but it's going to be proclaimed to the degree that it's announced even to Satan and his demons. Basically, he's saying our ministry should be such that we announce to Satan and his demons that their reign is over, that their reign, we, we are victorious. And how does God do this? What does he say? Through the manifold wisdom of the church. He doesn't say, Paul's saying, through me, through what I'm going to do. He says, no, through the manifold wisdom of the church. The word manifold there literally means many colored. And what it's saying here is, okay, this is God's plan. God is going to work in such a way to literally announce to Satan and his demons that the reign is over. 
And he's gonna do it through the church, which is made up of all kinds of people, all kinds of gifts, all different abilities. Each one of us present a unique painting, a unique picture, a unique part of this masterpiece of God's grace. And we're all different. We bring different skills and different abilities and different insights and different sensitivities. And each one of us, God's saying, now when we all work together through this manifold picture of the gospel, through this manifold picture of the church, as each one of us does our part, that's how God does this miracle. It's each one of us saying, okay, I'm a piece of this. It's not even Paul saying, through me. It's saying, I'm a piece of it. And, and when we all do our part, God works. You know how, how God works? Look what he continues to say, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the purpose that he has realized. Literally saying, if we really understand this, if we live into this, we realize that we may feel like we're in the battle, but if we live out faithfully, God's saying, okay, I'm gonna call you, and it's gonna feel like a battle, but I've already won the battle. The, battle, the victory's already realized. We're just going out there and we're fighting the battle, but we know, we know what the end result's gonna be. We can have that kind of confidence, not because of who we are, but who Jesus Christ is, because of his power at work within us. Now you say, okay, practically, what does this all mean? Let me bring this all home and just kind of, you know, close in the last couple minutes of really saying, what does this really mean in our own lives? Again, Paul isn't just telling us about his calling. He's telling us about his calling because it wants to, he wants it to be an example for us. He wants us to say, I want you to be as amazed by this truth as I am so that your life is as radically transformed as mine is. So what is our calling? How are we called to live it out? It doesn't mean that we go out international mission trips to plant churches like Paul. See, God hasn't called you to be the Apostle Paul. He hasn't called me to be the Apostle Paul. He's called me to be Mike Ribka. He's called me to be faithful to who I am. Each one of us are a unique masterpiece. You're not called to try to be anyone else other than who you are. And that means being faithful where you're at. And that's it. That's, that's simple. And that's, that's the calling that God has given us. He wants, to be faithful. he wants us to be faithful where we're at, to realize each one of us have been given a purpose and, and, and we're called to live out out of gratitude for what God has done over amazement over how he's changed us to be able to live that out in a way that tells other people, that serves the church. And, and we're this unique pastor, masterpiece and as we all work together, God, through this multicolored you know, work of art that he's doing, he accomplishes something amazing. And yes, the fact is, is that you know, you look at that and you say, I can never do Paul's ministry. I can never do Paul's ministry. You might say, I can never preach like you do. And well, the fact is, is that I could never do the things that you do. There are people that are serving here this morning. I could never do the ministries that you do. I could never reach the people that you reach. The fact is, that's part of the beauty of this multicolored church. And even on any Sunday morning, any week, we have a multicolored ministry in a sense where all kinds of people fill all kinds of needs. Each one of them are essential in their own way. So you have people greeting people with our greeters. You have people working in the coffee bar. You have people in the nursery taking care of kids, people discipling our young children. We have people that are out there that are in the tech team that are making sure that you, know, that you can hear us and it's online and you can watch us online. We have security team trying to keep things safe. We have uh, you know, uh, you know, people that are, um, you know, that are doing things throughout the week and Wednesday night programs and teaching adult Bible studies and, and all these different things. And they're all vital. 
And when you look at all the ministries that happen at our church, they don't happen unless we have this incredible multicolored church and each one to say, I'm willing to serve in the place that God has called me to serve. And I recognize that you know, by myself, I'm not doing a whole lot, but when I'm part of this whole, God's doing something beautiful and amazing and each one of us are vital within that. And not only that, but then we leave this building and what happens is we step out into a mission field because you say, well, I'm not called to be a missionary like Paul. Well, yes, you are called to be a missionary. It's just that the vast majority of us are called to be a missionary in Akron, Ohio. It doesn't mean that you go out somewhere other than where you're at. It means that you recognize that once we leave this church, we've entered the mission field. There are a lot of people who don't know the cure, who haven't heard the gospel, who desperately need the gospel message, this, this soul-transforming message that has saved us. And we realize that we live in a world where it's incredibly diverse and there's all kinds of people to reach. That's why he's raised up this multi-dimension church where we have all kinds of people that are represented in all different aspects of our world. And God has uniquely equipped you and put you on a mission field so that you can reach people that you're uniquely equipped to reach. And so that's at your workplace, and, and that's in your family, and that's in your schools, and, and that's in your neighborhood, and or it's maybe from your own experiences and things that you have been through. And so, for example, you know, Sandy and I have an opportunity. We can talk to people when they, their child is diagnosed with diabetes or autism. We have an opportunity to take that and to say, okay, we can relate to them, and that's an opportunity for ministry. And you may not be able to do that, but you can minister to people from your own life, from your own scars. As you let God redeem those that we could never do. See, each one of us has this opportunity. And how is this world reached? Through the, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Through the church, as each one of us, and we might say, well, how do we reach a culture? You know how we reach a culture if we have 400 people here today? What if 400 people said, okay, I'm going to try to reach one person over the next couple of years. Suddenly, hundreds of people are coming to know Christ. Suddenly, the culture is being changed. Why? Not because any one of us is doing anything amazing, but each one of us is being faithful where God has placed us, being a faithful missionary in our sphere of influence. And it might be as simple as just inviting somebody, start inviting somebody for Easter, inviting them for the extravaganza, invite them for Easter services. If you're not sure, you say, I don't know how to share the gospel. We'll bring them to a place where they will hear the gospel. Because what happens is each one of us are faithful. God works in amazing ways. And you might sit there and say, I don't really have what it takes. And I don't really, well, all, you, you know, all you have is, this is my story. This is how God's changed me. And because this is my story, I'm excited about that. I want to share it with other people, and I'm just going to be faithful, and I'm going to let God take care of it from there. And you know what? God is able to take just our little bit of faithfulness, and he's able to work through the power of his spirit and do amazing things. So we have a chance to see lives being saved, families being changed, you know, lives being transformed. Just each one of us to say, God, help me to be faithful where I'm at. Help me to see the people in my sphere of influence that you've put me in and want to share with them, to share this cure that has cured my cancer and to be willing to be able to share the hope that I found and I know that they desperately need, even if they don't know it right now. And God, I pray that you will use my little bit of faithfulness to do amazing things because you're an amazing God. And that is it for this week's message. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us a text to 330-644-6121. Easter is almost here, and we have a lot of great things planned for Easter Sunday, Good Friday, and we also have special events planned just for kids. 
Learn more about all of those in our service times at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in prayer requests. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.